about seven o'clock in the morning. I'm walking along the incredibly quiet streets of Glasgow where the march was yesterday. There's strewn banners everywhere and it's pretty tidy, but there's a few things left over. You can definitely see there was evidence of lots and lots of people here yesterday. 150,000 many are estimating for this march, which was amazing. And I am making my way through the streets into the climate negotiation center. It's early in the morning. We were all up pretty late last night, the inevitable middle of the week parties. It's Sunday morning. So this is basically the only sort of off day in the middle of the COP, but it's not really an off day. And I'm gonna find my way in and I'm gonna find my friend, Nigel, Nigel Topping, the high level climate action champion. And I wanna find out from him, how do we think about where we are now, halfway through the COP? It really has been a city of two tales. The story on the inside has been full of optimism and commitments and claims that we're, if not there, then certainly bending the curve towards where we need to be. And on the outside, it's been met with this sense of, it's all hot air, it's all blah, blah, blah. You say these things and then you don't do them and you can see why they why that's being said. I mean, this is certainly not the first time countries have come together and made big commitments. Um, and in general, they've not been met in the way that it's been claimed that they would do. So Nigel's right on the heart of that. He's close to what's going on. He's close to the numbers. How do they add up? So that's what I want to talk to him about. Let me go through security. Hey there. Do I have to go, do I go, sorry for interrupting your breakfast, yeah. Um, do I go this way to get to the Crown Plaza? Yeah. Oh, it's nice and calm here today, isn't it? <laughs> now inside the venue, it's... For those listeners who haven't been here, it is fast. I mean, all cops are big, but this one's really big. And it's all in one great big long line, so you've got it from one end to the other. It takes a good sort of 15 minutes to talk, to walk from side to side got a mask on of course so I have to go through a few more layers of security to get to the Crown Plaza mate it's so good to see you are we recording yeah, recording <laughs> were you recording when I was saying all the bad things about all the good people no I unfortunately only just managed to press the record button <laughs> so I've got a big hammer I'm going to smash that, that thing of you. no I'm not, not everyone, yet I'm not yet that kind of reporter everyone's lovely Everyone's lovely. Quote from Nigel Topping. Even the people I said other things about earlier. <laughs> Mate, it's so good to see you. I've been seeing you rushing around the corridors. Actually, no, that's not true. You have not been rushing around the corridors. And in fact, that's been very impressive. I've seen you walking mindfully through the corridors. Well, because you know we have our two Zen monk yeah. uh, uh, brothers yeah. in our support team. And in yeah. fact, they've got a whole support team back in Plum Village. They're amazing, those two. <laughs> it's really lovely because yeah. we have... Um, Two, two, two Zen brothers with us, and um, they have a whole support team. They, they call it uh, uh, Mission Control in Houston in yeah. Palm Village, and they've just come here in, in service of what we're all in service of. Yeah. Um, but because they're not involved in any of the processes. And it's interesting, just knowing that they were coming. Calmed you down. Yeah, and it made me because you know we have to. I have offices at one end with the UN offices, and then all of the action zones at the other end. Yeah, which is about two miles apart. So, about, yeah. <laughs> um, so the, the, there might be a natural tendency to try and sprint whilst reading phones and bumping into people, which gets everybody stressed. If those who are in positions of decision making look stressed in the corridor, it's amazing the impact it has on people. Yeah. yeah. So, so, so yeah. now I just try and give myself enough time to be able to walk yeah. calmly from one end to the other. 
actually enjoy bumping into many old friends yeah. and not not do that thing where you've already walked past someone when you say bye, I love you, see, speak to you later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And just um, so yeah, having having yeah. You know, and we've and and you know we try and start all of our meetings with a minute silence and. We had them join a, a big round table with a lot of civil society leaders hmm. yesterday just to try and keep us all grounded Breathing. in our Because the energy humanity. tends to like rise up, doesn't it? It gets kind of breathless it at these things. It does get breathless. Yeah. yeah. So, we're trying so to, yeah. I mean, amazing. Because I have to say, when I've seen you walking around calmly, it, it, it's good. You know, it makes a difference. Yeah. And, yeah. and, and it's funny, we were just saying earlier that people, a lot of people come up to me and say, how, how are you? How are you? You must, you must be exhausted. <laughs> you must be, I'm like, um, no. Uh, no, no yeah. I'm not. I'm really well. I'm not exhausted. Yeah. I'm looking after my sleep. Yeah, it's the most important nourishment. Yeah, that we can get. And um, yeah, half, over halfway through now, I'm feeling good. Over halfway through, and it's. I mean, it's an interesting broader point, and it's certainly been true of these climate negotiations that outcome. Maybe it's because we haven't done what we've wanted to do in these things, but achievement is equated with exhaustion and stress rather than outcomes. That's part of the problem, right? It should not be. Yeah, and what you know, we've talked a lot about systems change, and what yeah. I notice is that. Systems have a tendency to seek um, coherence at every level. So at the macro, the meso, and then at the individual. So one thing I just noticed uh, this week was that, you know, our current system is basically based on rabid overconsumption. Hmm. That's one of the things that we're trying to reverse, right? Sure. We need to change economic models so that they work within planetary boundaries so that yeah. growth at all costs is not rewarded, especially physical throughput growth. And then I notice a tendency when we put on an event. So somebody who's working towards that stable economic future within planetary boundaries, that the approach to the event will often be to cram as many possible as many people can. So we have eight people in the panel and 23 speakers in one hour. And I'm like, I just noticed, oh, that's just another It's a workshop manifestation of the thinking behind capitalism. Absolutely. It, it, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Of, so we have overconsumption built into a panel. And then that panel becomes stressed and everyone's rushing. And I was like... We just have to let go of yeah. the fact that you can't have everything yeah. at once all the time. And if we had half as many people in some of those sessions, it would be calmer and more informative and more interesting yeah. and more engaging yeah. instead of just more stress. Yeah. Now, I want to ask you, so it's Sunday morning. We're sitting here, we just had breakfast in the Crown Plaza in the Blue Zone. And I want to ask you, how should we think about what's happened so far? It's been, I mean, I've obviously had a diff very different view of it from you but it just seems so much a city of two tales yeah you know there's been amazing announcements actually you know incredible and and you know culminating in the realization that if fully implemented everything that's happened thus far after the first week would keep us to 1.8 degrees and honestly if we'd known in 2015 we'd get to this point by now we'd have bitten your arm off right this is incredible progress from then at the same time you know, I was at the march yesterday and I've spoken to many who are involved in the civil society movement. And people are like, this is all bullshit. These promises have been made before. We're back at the table. We're saying the same things. Nothing's different. When are you going to stop greenwashing and wake up? So, and I, it's quite weird to see how those two poles get pulled apart. So yeah. how do you think about that? Well, I, first of all, I think recognizing that both of those realities are here, that on the one hand, there is a massive increase in ambition and commitment from governments, investors, businesses, cities, states and regions. I went to a, a dinner last night with the Under Two Coalition, which is going to become a net zero coalition. That's okay. nearly yeah. 300 states and regions from 
Scotland to Baden-Württemberg yeah, to KwaZulu-Natal. It's amazing. To, to, yeah. to California, to Chungnam province in, in, in Korea. Um, half of the world's economy and a quarter of the world's people. It's a pretty, pretty significant group, mm. right? We're going to their General Assembly today where they'll adopt that, um, that, that sort of new membership criterion. So there is real momentum at every level of government and in, and in the uh, real economy. And, uh, and there's real rage, frustration, skepticism justified because we're at COP26 and the emissions are still rising. Yeah. So the question is, how does that um, dichotomy get bridged? Yeah. And does the elastic band snap? And what happens if it snaps? What happens if it does? Or do we pull it together? I mean, one of the things, one of the dangers of the sort of bubble world of social media is that everyone just, everyone, everyone knows they're right. Yeah. Whilst pursuing different reality so i'll give you one example there's massive rage at a perceived total reliance on offsets to deliver all the promises yeah, it was but really one of the one flashpoint of, topics here. but you know yeah. we, we in the race to zero which gonzalo my fellow high level champion and i run we now have over eight thousand organizations in that and one of the very clear criteria for those who can be bothered to read it is that you can't rely on offsets Right. Yeah, to yeah. claim that you're on a net zero science-based trajectory. So what I realize is we have to really, we have to find ways to have the conversations between people who hate each other. Yeah. <laughs> That's hard, right? Because they don't necessarily even want to be in the same room. Um, we, we tried it. We did, when, when, when Race to Zero started really picking up, we started getting a lot of, you know, net zero is not zero and, you know, greenwash bullshit, blah, blah, blah. Um, it's a good statement, blah, 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 because it's, it's very well used, isn't it? Yeah, but, okay. it's used to, but, but, it's, yeah. but it applies on both sides. I mean, yeah. if you say, you know, net zero is not zero, that's, sorry, but that's blah, blah, blah. Right. Right. Net zero is the scientific definition of what we need to get to. Net right. zero is enshrined in the Paris Agreement. Yeah. So, of course, so we, we, we held a, a, a public conversation with some of the loud, strident, critical voices, not to try and justify, but to try and understand. Mm. And, and the, 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 anger behind kind of net zero blah 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 is justified it's based on a real concern that people will take the phrase net zero and use it to greenwash yeah so they'll set 2050 targets and do nothing yeah they'll um commit to buying lots of cheap offsets and do nothing i mean basically it's all about the concern that people will say something and not do it and, and do yeah. nothing now but if you look look at what we've done in the race to zero it's about you have to set the long-term target because yeah again, that's what paris is about and we're trying to get to net zero in the 2040s as we call it a race for yeah. a reason um then you have to set a short-term target right yeah. so that if you're the ceo or the mayor you've got to set a target that you're responsible for and account for on your watch and then you've got to lay out the plans and then you've got to publish your progress and you can't and it's got to be all, all scopes and you can't rely on offsets so that's the that's the real challenge now is how to bridge those to bridge those two tails and, they, and we won't we won't emerge from Glasgow with one happy clappy right tail yeah. where everyone agrees but but my hope would be that we emerge with a with a realization that something really amazing has happened that the promise of the Paris Agreement is being delivered we're seeing a ratchet that's one of the fundamental I mean I always say there's three bits of genius in the Paris Agreement many but um, which give it redundancy in terms of mechanisms for increasing ambition hmm. so you've got the ndc national, you know, national, yeah, yeah, national yeah. government plans which have to come back every five years and be more ambitious i think we've now got 90 percent of the world economy committed to net zero by mid-century i know that includes china 2060 and india 2070 but you know china's always under over 
underpromised and overdelivered. Right. And, and the India commitment contains incredible commitments to be delivered in this decade, it, right? So it, there are other things it, in there. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, my my yeah. view, my reading of that is India will also get to net zero by 2050. They just don't want to say it now. Politically, it's not possible yeah, to do that domestically. Okay. Yeah. But, but 500 yeah. gigawatts of renewable power, 50% renewables by 2030. Yeah. In the, you know, what will be the biggest country by population in the world, then it's like, that's really impressive. Yeah. Right? And that's a very, very big deal. So then, and then you've got the long-term strategies, also part of the Paris Agreement, so, and we've seen that already. That often, when a country politically maybe can't talk much about short-term policy, there's still enough freedom to talk about a long-term yeah. plan. And then there's the welcoming in of the non-state actors, the mm. cities, the businesses, the investors, the states and regions. So what we're seeing here is all three of those ratcheting, 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 and influencing each other. You know, we talk about the ambition loop. Um, so that that's real. And yes. It's all about implementation yeah. now. But we're already seeing money flowing into solutions. If you look at, say, green steel or green hydrogen, two much vaunted and much needed solutions, a year ago, very little real money committed. Hmm. Now, tens of billions real money committed. People are building green steel plants. People are investing in green um, electrolysis hmm. of water to create green hydrogen. Um, people are committing to green shipping lanes. They're committing to significant volumes of sustainability fuel. They're committing to an accelerated transformation to electric vehicles. They're committing to phasing out coal. And none of it is enough. Yeah. But Gonzalo has a great phrase. He says, we, we need to look at the movie, not just the still. Because hmm. if you look at the snapshot, you tend to focus on all the gaps and the problems. If you look at the trajectory, you know, before Paris, we were on something like a six degree trajectory after Paris, more like four degrees, coming into Glasgow, 2.7. Maybe, and, yeah. and the key is, in, if all implemented, maybe we've broken the two-degree barrier yeah. now. And uh, and if we can update plans much more regularly than every five years, yeah. maybe we can be within shouting distance of, of 1.5. No, it's, I mean, it's, again, you know, I just sort of, I just want to stay on this thing for a bit because, like, for example, one of the things that's come out this week that I think has been most remarkable has been the forest commitments, right, which has been in, in, in enormous amounts of, of, of preparation and it's incredibly cleverly constructed, right? Because it's 100 com countries that have committed to halting and reversing deforestation by 2030, but it's backed up by a whole range of other supporting commitments by other stakeholders like investors who are going to shift capital and, you know, agricultural commodity companies are going to change their supply chain. So if you look at that and if you study it, and I spent a bit of time looking at it, I'm like, this is completely different to, for example, the New York Declaration on Forest yep. that was a statement in 2014. And, but it almost feels like we're kind of the boy who cried wolf. Because, because in 2014 we said we'd end deforestation and it's gone up by 48% since then, we come back now with another statement that looks on the surface to be similar. And as a result of that, there's an enormous outwave of, you know, outbreak of skepticism yeah. in looking at it. So, you know, I'd love to get into the specifics in just a sec, but just on that, do you agree that the only way, that in a way, those two perspectives now can only be brought back together over time by the demonstration of action. Yeah. This isn't about communicating it differently or anything like that. We have to show that we're really reducing and that will lead to a healing of that narrative or? Well, I think fundamentally the healing will only come through action. Yeah. I do think that um, sometimes the proclamations of victory are a bit too boosterish yeah. and a bit more humility and recognition yeah. that, that, that the feeling of deja vu is justified. Right. Just, you know, the New York Declaration is a really good example. I also think we need to do what you've just done and explain that this is now about systems transformation. Right. So when one actor, right, yeah. if corporates commit, very difficult, but if governments and the value chain 
and civil society and finance are all committing, you know, we've talked about this, like committing to the same exponential goals yeah. by 2030, then it starts to de-risk it for everybody um, and you get much bigger coalitions of the willing which eventually create the momentum to be able to do it. But the proof of the pudding's still in the eating. And of course, you, you know, we, we, we do know in the case of deforestation, the reversal's really been because of one country, yeah, right? right? Yeah. Um, but on that... Um, it's Brazil for listeners. Yeah, for, those who, <laughs> for those who didn't get the subtle um, reference. It wasn't that subtle. Um, no. Um, but again, interestingly, you remember when uh, under Trump, um, we had this big we are still in movement of uh, businesses, uh, banks, universities, cities, and states yeah. in America saying we're still in. Although the federal government says we're out of Paris, we're still doing everything we can. That's what kept hope and momentum alive. And that's why, and especially with the passing of the big infrastructure bill, you know, America's in much better shape now than it would have been if there had only been a federal government yeah. and that momentum hadn't continued. Um, similarly in Brazil, you know, um, uh, I think uh, a year ago, there were no Brazilian states in the race to zero. Hmm. And there's now 10, and I think there'll be 14 either tomorrow or by the end of the week. By the time this podcast comes out. By the time the podcast comes out. <laughs> otherwise, I was, I was just thinking you've got to rewind that bit. Um, you know, we have, we have, a, we have a yeah. Cities and Regions Day on Thursday the 11th. Um, 14 Brazilian governors committed to get to net zero by 2050. And that's most of Brazil. I don't know how many that, states are in well, Brazil. Over seven, there's 22. So that's, I think okay. if, yeah. I remember, if I've got my Brazilian geography right. But the, over 70% of the economy. Hmm. Um, and that includes like right. Minas Gerais and, and lots of sit, lots of mining economy-based cities committing to net zero. So, you know, That's a political resilience of the commitment that is beyond anything we've really seen before, right? Because we tend to go tick-tocking back and forth as the politics go. But you're right, that combination of different types of actors makes it more resilient. Well, as I say, that was yeah. part of the genius of the, of the, of the countries who were yeah. parties to the Paris Agreement, recognising that these different forms of redundancy, you know, like long-term as well as short-term plans, so depending on that political tick-tock and, and, and embracing yeah. non-state actors, gives, does give more, you know, redundancy gives, you know, it's a key... If you want resilience, you've got to have multiple different types of players, different types there, of yeah. players in there. Yeah. yeah, And so I'd love to just ask your perspective on, you know, one of the things that's been most controversial this week has been the finance piece. Yeah. So Mark Carney came out on Finance Day on Wednesday and made this announcement. There was 130 trillion committed to net zero. And, you know, on the surface, you know, that's a sort of incredible, sort of unbelievable number. Right. But also there's been a lot of criticism of that. People say it's air, includes my credit card debt and your pension and, you know, all these other different things. And is it really there? And he said a few things that have felt like they've been a bit um, unfortunate, particularly for developing countries. He said things like that money's all available if you want it. And they're like, well, we can't even get hold of 100 billion. H how do you think about that? Well, first of all, I think Mark Carney's done more than almost anyone to transform the global financial system so that it's getting in shape for delivering the Paris Agreement. Um, um, and maybe that's why sometimes he has a target on his back. Um, uh, that 130 trillion is real, but it's not available to be spent tomorrow. Um, so I think it's just worth nuancing a bit. Um, I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't add up to 130 trillion. It's like a $130 trillion signal because you've got asset owners and asset managers. Obviously, asset managers manage the money of asset owners. So right. There's, there's a, there's and we count it twice in so this context. Twice. Yeah. But yeah. you know, you know, CDP's done that for years and yeah. got away with it, right? Yeah. But it's just it's a, it's, it's a it's a signal of intention to change. Then you've got to go to the detail. So um, there's 450 firms in there. So this is way past the tipping point. Yeah. And they're all committed to aligning their portfolios and their balance sheets to net zero, and we and with the race to zero criteria underpinning that. Hmm. And so over the next couple of years, if people don't live up to those criteria, they'll be kicked out of the 
raced to zero, right? But what they're all, and 90 of the 450, I think, have already delivered their plans, and the others will have to in the next 12, 18 months, okay. depending on. Yeah. Um, and then they'll have to annually report on progress and be held accountable. Now, there's a lot of great civil society organizations already scrutinizing banks in particular for fossil fuel, um, fuel lending. Um, but that's going to get easier because people are now committed. Mm -hmm. So it's not just you're doing the wrong thing, but you said you'd do the right thing and you're doing the wrong and, thing. Yeah, right. So, so, so it's a gift to campaigners. Um, it, it's also a gift to the transition because we know in the, 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 the work that Vivid Economics published um, on the finance day, you know, we need $2.6 trillion a year. That's um, a, a multiple of what? That's to transition the global economy. Transition the global economy. Okay. Um, and a lot of that investment has to go into emerging markets. There's yeah. no way to get to net zero yeah. with, a, with, with a dirty investment trajectory in emerging mm. markets and a clean one in the global north. Most of the city growth, most of the infrastructure growth will be in emerging markets. So for me, what the really exciting thing is a lot of the negotiations are trapped in a 1992 worldview, mm. you know, with the folly that um, China and Korea are, are developing countries. Right, right, right. All right. I mean, China's a special case. It's the biggest, you know, it's the big gorilla in the room, but it's not the same as Sudan or Barbados, yeah. right? Um, and uh, and Korea is a fully developed yeah. country. Right? So uh, second of all, it's trapped in the. In, so, so it's also there's also a victim trap, which says that the only solution from us as poor victims is that you, as the perpetrators, give give us more money. I mean, there's the truth of the climate injustice behind that, but in my conversations with people from um, small island states and yeah. vulnerable sub-Saharan African countries, they're fed up with that victim narrative. They're, they're, they're not pathetic, hopeless creatures sitting, on, you know, sitting around waiting for help. They're resourceful, motivated, empowered mm. peoples, communities, countries, getting on with doing the best they can, and they need more solidarity. Yeah. Right? But it doesn't always come in the form of more just more, a handout, more, right? Yeah. More yeah. What we need is yeah. more intellect as well, yeah. as, as, well, as, well as more yeah. cash. I think one of the 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 traps of of a negotiated process with that with that with that dynamic is that it becomes um, unallowable to discuss the fact that the enabling conditions in many countries are not there for private capital right. to flow. The fact that the MDBs are often multilateral development the multilateral banks, development yeah. banks are yeah. often not focusing on bringing in as much money as possible to create as much impact as possible, but are measuring themselves against their, what I've got a front of pipe target. Hmm. Like why is the World Bank number one target that we're going to use 35% of our funds on climate rather than right. we're going to use those 35% to bring in, you know, X trillion of private sector money. Why is it only 35%? And why is it only 35%? Yeah, yeah. Why isn't it 100% yeah. aligned? So I think that um, the 130 plus is real, but in the sense that it's a massive signal. Yeah. It's not real in the sense that if you add it up, you get to 130 because there's overlap. And it's not real if, in the sense that it's not available to be spent today. And it won't be available to be spent today in a country with, um, without the rule of law, with, in, <laughs> you know, yeah. with, with endemic corruption, um, that's still investing massively in fossil fuel subsidies. Mm. Now, you can't expect people to invest in green energy in a country that is still investing in fossil fuel subsidies, yeah. like a negative carbon price. Um, so I, my hope is that that signal helps um, 
the limited amount of public finance be better focused at grants where it's really needed, like in the least developed countries, yeah. and in and in helping work with governments in emerging markets to create the conditions for much more yeah. private capital to flow. I went I went to Kenya earlier in the year in a rare window in the COVID restrictions, um, and that was one of the things which inspired us to work during the World Leaders Summit to have a little interlude looking at some of the solutions which African governments are leading. We launched the African Green Finance Coalition. We've launched the African Green Hydrogen Coalition. There's a lot of big commitments, um, you know, the, the, the Global Energy Alliance, you know, like yeah. potentially 10 billion of philanthropic and, and MDB money to leverage in 100 billion to deliver energy access for a billion people, so basically to end the energy access mm. crisis, most of which it's is an amazing project. I love that, yeah. So yeah. If, you, if you pick through all the announcements last week, one of the most exciting things for me is that actually quite a lot of them are focused on emerging and developing yeah. countries with real financial commitments from philanthropists, from governments, and from the private sector. And that is the bit that I think yeah. will really heal this. So action is one thing, as you said, yeah. like the promises being met with action, that can, only time can do that. But the other thing, and I think with an African presidency next year, we'll see a lot more focus on it, is really addressing the problem solving we need. It's yeah. not, you, ca you can't just throw money at, at complex problems. You have to engineer your way yeah. through them in, in, with the, in this multi-stakeholder way that you referred to earlier. So that's my hope that next year we start to see the real evidence of action and we start problem solving. Yeah. Don't just say, we need more money for loss and damage. How, yeah. where from, you know, we need to break that down. And again, we need redundancy. We need more than one solution. It's so interesting. I mean, we need to get like, I mean, this is something we've talked about for years, like the system change narrative in order to demonstrate how multiple players can come together in a mutually self-supporting way to shift economies, shift the trajectory of the planet. Actually, it just feels like we're beginning to kind of get our arms around that and think about that in a kind of proper way. Um, I know you've been a deep thinker on that for a long time. I want to ask you about China. I know you're not... Um, specifically not responsible for China responsible for China <laughs> but I mean you know Joe Biden came here and criticized China heavily um, of course he himself didn't sign up to the coal pact anyway um, which China also didn't sign up to Xi Jinping wasn't here the nationally determined commitment that if you think back a few weeks ago we were all really hoping that China would come forward yeah. and you know bring forward the peaking date from 2030 to sometime in the 2020s you know um, net zero sooner than 2060 they didn't do that we know that uh, Minister Shear was closeted with John Kerry for three or four days in London last week but we haven't heard anything or at least I haven't in terms of what was said I mean is, is it a disappointment how China's shown up here look when it's the biggest when you have the, the biggest emitting country not bringing their head of state and not coming with anything new yet yeah, yeah, that's true. Only I mean, halfway you know, through. I yeah. remain, I remain open to to pleasant Stubbornly surprises. Optimistic. Yeah, um, of course it's disappointing, but um, I do think you know, I think culturally, you know, the West maybe has more of a history of um, over promising and under delivering, and China a bit more of a history of under promising and over delivering. I agree. I mean, yeah. I, I, you know, when 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 she says we'll get to net zero before twenty sixty, I mean. I read, that as, I, read yeah. that as 20, I read that as 2050. Yeah. Same with India, 2070. Well, they'll get there in 2050. I mean, there's politics behind. There's a reason why they put space between their goals because there's still a politics of common but differentiated responsibility. Um, I mean, I think, the, I think the danger is that the West, particularly America, falls into the trap of believing its own trope about um, the West being the saviors of the world and China being the problem. Yeah. I mean, that's just not 
borne up by the facts that China is the country that's driven the cost down in solar and wind in batteries yeah. and electric vehicles. So um, and as a result of that, gained a global uh, industrial competitive advantage. So if you think that by criticizing China, you're going to slow them down in getting a competitive advantage in the next four industries, like you know, green hydrogen, green steel, mm. green cement, standard aviation fuel, then you might be choosing to export jobs to China. So I, th I, th I think, you know, if, 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 if John Kerry was in this conversation here, my advice would be focus a little bit on your own industrial competitiveness yeah. um, and make sure you're uh, industrially and therefore in terms of emissions ahead of China rather than this sort of rather chippy and uh, zero-sum game Right, yeah, which feels narrative. a bit pre-Paris. Yeah. 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 All right, mate, this has been really helpful. It's been so nice to see you. Um, I've got to ask you, one week to go, give us one thing you're outraged by and one thing you're optimistic about. Um, I've had some really moving encounters with farmers, groups, and indigenous leaders. And um, it's been very moving. Right, and This is why I understand, I understand the outrage, because all of the structural inequalities in the current global economic system are thrown into harsh relief by climate change. You know, you know this, I was, in, I was in Bonn at the UNFCCC headquarters a few weeks ago, and I walked through that big foyer where there's a picture of the Paris Agreement. Hmm. There's a lot of men in dark suits and about 10 women out of 200. So it's like gender, in, gender inequity staring you in the face from the world leaders. That hasn't really changed. Um, you know, farmers like being squeezed by the global food system actually to do what they don't want to do and deplete the land and indigenous peoples like again being being squeezed. So those meetings for me have been really um, quite deeply moving. I mean, more more more, more you know sort of sadness and outrage yeah. mixed. Yeah. Um, and then the optimism comes from the fact that I think we are seeing this system change of multiple actors. And, with, and, and, and on the indigenous peoples, the forest, deforestation commitments, there's a lot of really very clear commitment to and involvement of forest-dwelling indigenous peoples yeah. and recognition that without their engagement and their involvement, then uh, nature-based solutions, as we call them, will not be either just or sustainable, and therefore will be if we don't include the guardians of the land, then we'll be likely to be back in the situation of deja vu and having made big promises and not delivered on them. So I think the, the, the outrage comes from the structural inequities which are there and are yeah. part of the system which has created the problem. And the optimism comes from real signals of systems change from, as you say, not just one actor, but multiple actors all going towards the same goal. Amazing. Mate, so nice to see you. Thank you for everything you're doing. We're all behind you. <laughs> Thanks, Enjoy Tom. the next week. Yeah, all I right. will do, and I'll do, and I'll do my best for everyone. Cheers, Thanks, mate. Thanks. Three, two, one, zero.